I can remember saying to my mum, there's a green piece of paper in my safe. But on that green piece of paper, it says who's responsible. And that was heartbreaking. I couldn't give her any information apart from if I'm killed, that explains everything. That's Chris, a former career criminal. Despite the fact that we've spent our lives on opposite sides of the law, we have more in common than you'd think. Today, I want to talk to Chris about a very specific life event that we have in common and how it changed the way we live our lives forever. From Storic Media, you're listening to Codename Siren, a true crime podcast with Nina Hobson. remember how we even got on the subject yeah i can't remember how the discussion come up but as soon as you started talking i'm thinking yeah i know exactly how you fucking feel and nobody else in the world knows how you feel because it's not like oh i went bowling at the weekend yeah somebody tried to kill me once yeah so to actually come out of here i think you might have said something first i'm like fucking hell yeah this is one of the very few things i never discuss with people what also stuck with me i mean I explained to you, obviously, that time in my life was really lonely. And the hit on me wasn't for that long, but it was really, really lonely because I didn't want to be around anyone because I didn't know what had happened. And for me, in my world, a hit was all about movies. I remember saying to you how scared I was when I was in my car and I was at traffic lights because I've seen the movies where the guy rides up on the motorbike and shoots you. And that in my head, that was what was going to happen. And then when I was at home, I was like, oh, I'm in my house, so I'm safe here. No one's going to come here. And uh, I mean, the most stupid thing ever to even think like that. But that was kind of my rationale. And then when you started talking about your experiences, which was totally opposite. Yeah, I couldn't even go home. So... When I found out, you know, my whole, I was around somebody else's house when I found out, my whole world just dropped out from under me. I didn't go home for weeks and I'd just stay around people's houses. I didn't have no money at the time. And I remember when I eventually did go back to my house, it was weeks later. Honestly, I'm laughing to myself because it's like something out of a fucking movie. Because I've parked up the road, I've borrowed a gun from someone, and I'm trying to sneak over a fence to get in my back door. Do you remember that that program, The Professionals, with Bodie and Doyle? Yeah. It was like that. And I'm fucking walking <laughs> round the walls um, in, in the house with a shooter, waiting for somebody to, that's waiting for me. And I got there and think, ah, oh, fuck it. Nobody's been here. So um, it, was, it was a bit of an anticlimax. I know there's only certain things that you can discuss with me. Obviously, the reason that it was taken out on me were very different we should never even be friends. We should never speak to each other. Our backgrounds are like the polar opposite. And that in itself is bizarre, let alone that we have these kind of discussions. But the thing is, I mean, over the years that I've known you, there's been so much that we haven't been able to talk about. We've discussed a lot, but we both know that there's a lot you could never tell me and a lot I could never tell you. I try desperately not to think about it because it, it will still keep me awake uh, of a night time. What was the thing that triggered it, if you can tell me? I did something illegal. It's something that I've done before. It's not a big deal. I did what I did. That was it. A couple of days later, that's when I found out that the people I'd stitched up 
were bad people. Now, it's not like I can go back and say, yeah, sorry about that. I've done it. So I thought, as long as they don't know, I'm fine. And then it was in the back of my mind, but I kind of forgot about it. A year later, I was around a friend's house, and I, I said, I've got to borrow your computer. I'm going to check my emails. And I've checked my emails. I've got an email from a complete stranger saying, you don't know me. I've just had a phone call from a third party saying you're in danger. A year ago, you did this, this, and this, and explained exactly what I did. They now know it was you that did it, and basically your life's in danger. They're coming for you. The problem was I didn't want a message back. I didn't. I just shut the computer down. That's it. I didn't know what information they had on me. If they knew my name, if they knew what I looked like, if they knew my address, I didn't know what they knew. And it was that not knowing that done me Edim. The problem was my child was due to be born any day. So normally I'll just fuck off. But I've now got a child about to be born. I've got to stay in the area. I didn't know what to do. That's how it all came about in the beginning. But the fact that they knew everything means that, yeah, it was legit because nobody would know those details. And so you're now faced with a dilemma of my life's in danger, but I'm about to have a baby. This was my first, my first child. But I mean, I'm part of me thinking, right, do I just fuck off now? And, you know, because a child might be in danger. What actually happened was when the, the child was born um, two weeks later, I was at the birth. But even I went outside the hospital for a cigarette. I ain't even standing outside the hospital. I'm looking in the car park. I didn't even feel safe. And it's horrible that even as my child is being born, I'm thinking, who's outside the doors? You know, who's in the car park? Even then, it was in the back of my mind. You know, my child couldn't take my surname. I actually changed my name um, then anyway. The, the fact that my child was born meant that I couldn't leave, so I did have to stick around the area. The timing was just, you couldn't imagine a worse time for this to happen. Obviously, you could now have put your child in danger. What made you make the decisions that you made? Obviously, you've become a dad. What made you stay? In this world, people don't go after innocent people. People don't go after civilians. They don't go after children. So in my mind, I'm thinking, they're only going to come after me. I'm the one that wronged them. And yeah, it did take a lot of thinking about what to do. But yeah, the, the right decision was, I've just got to front it out, just do what I can to remain anonymous. You just said innocent people don't have a hit taken out on their life. Uh, excuse me, that's the words from a criminal. <laughs> right there. <laughs> yeah, but they didn't think you was innocent, Nina. <laughs> no, they just thought I was good. That's the problem. Exactly. That's your own problem, mate. That's your own fault. Has this ever been taken off or are you, are you still a target? I'm still a target. It's been, thing is, it's been that long now that hopefully it's been forgotten about. But you know very well, Nina, that people don't really forget things. And I don't think about it on a daily basis anymore, but I can hear that the sleepless nights I had over this, just waiting for my door to go through and, you know, somebody to stand there with a shooter. So it never goes away fully. I had the police looking after me at the at that time after that happened. But for you, it's a, a different reason. And you weren't going to call the police and get them to come and put cameras at your house. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, they weren't going to happen. I don't even know whether you're allowed to say your impressions of the police. I mean, uh, you can't generalise. 
and the British police and the American police, very fucking different. See, this, this, I've got to be careful with this one. So I was in New Jersey a few years ago, and um, I was having a drink at a bar with some friends of mine, and there's a cop sitting at the bar, just drinking a cup of coffee with this big fucking geezer next to him. And I've got to order another drink, and the barman says, oh, these drinks are on him, and points to the cop. I said, uh, cheers, buddy. What's that? He goes, who are you with? I said, what do you mean? He goes, well, I've seen that tattoo you've got. I know what it means. So I've laughed, and I said, well, then you know I'm going to tell you nothing. And the big guy comes over, he says, it's okay, I'm so-and-so, I'm affiliated with these people. So then I could talk. But what made me laugh was the cop, who's in uniform, his car's outside, he's on duty, he's sitting at the fucking bar drinking a Jack Daniels while he's on duty. So we've had a few drinks together. This old boy comes in, and it, honestly, it's like saying out the fucking Soprano. This old boy comes in, he's chatting to us. I get introduced to him, and they said, oh, you know who that is, told me his name. I said, I've never heard of him. They went, oh, he's killed more people than cancer, that one. The upshot was, we've ended up going to a cop bar in Newark, in New Jersey, where I bought some coke off of a US marshal. And I'm like, I said, is this a fucking sting? Am I going to get nicked with this? And I'm like, nah, you're with these guys, it's all right. Yeah, so I wanted to buy, buy some, uh, some gear off of a US marshal. And that's why you do my infiltration, because it just happens. Yeah. I mean, I know you, and I've known you for a long time, and I know that, obviously, having your child changed things, but did the fact that you had this hit hanging over you change anything you did, or was it like, you know what, I've lived in this world for a long time, and this is what happens, and I've just got to live with it? I changed the things I was doing. The criminal activity I then got involved in was more bank and insurance fraud, but What I've done is nobody, none of my mates, none of my family, nobody knew what I was ever up to. That's why I never went to prison, because everybody thought, you know, I was working hard and I had a good job. I think you'll find, you know, when you was a cop, Nina, that someone always grasses. Nobody can keep a secret. And everybody just tells one person and then they tell one person. So I kept my mouth shut about everything. And then... The jobs I did do, it was only me involved. I didn't involve other people. And then my targets were banks, building societies, and insurance companies. You know, I've never stitched over a civilian or an innocent person or a normal family. I would never do that. But my targets were always banks, building societies, and insurance companies. And I don't shed a tear over them. Going back to the hit, what was it like for you living on a daily basis? Because for me, obviously, it was super lonely. Um, I shipped my kids off to, or one was in America, and you know that the other one came to America immediately. You know, what was going on in your head? I got a few really close friends, a couple that I could actually tell what was going on. So one one mate of mine, he, he comes from a traveling family. You know, they're very trustworthy people. Um, so I'd stay around, I'd sleep on his couch. His family knew what was going on. But for me, I'd get in my car. And if I was driving, I was safe. Because if I didn't know where I was going, and as long as I wasn't being followed, then no one knew where I was. So I'll get on the M25, go up the M1, go up the M4, and I'll just drive and drive. And that way, I was safe. And that was my, my sanctuary was my car. And you know what, Nina, to this day, I feel safest when I'm driving. When I was in when I was in California, 
you know, I drove all around California. You know, I remember going up through the Mojave Desert and coming back from San Francisco and up to Yosemite. And whenever I'm driving, I'm happy I'm safe. I don't know if that's because of what happened. And when you say you're in your car, are you doing cancer surveillance while you're in your car just just to make sure? No, I was getting, I was just getting the fuck out of the area. I didn't want to, I didn't want to take the risk of driving past somewhere and someone spotting me. Even though it's a million to one shot, they're going to see me in a dark car with a hat and sunglasses. But I didn't want to take that risk. I just didn't want to go anywhere near that area. So what I ended up doing was moving house. Um, I went back a couple of times, packed my stuff up, got out there, moved house, changed my name. I can remember saying to my mum, if anything happens to me, there's a green piece of paper in my safe. This is where the safe is. This is where the key is. And on that green piece of paper, it says who's done me and who's done it and who's responsible. And that was heartbreaking to my mum, telling my mum, and I couldn't give her any information apart from if I'm killed, there's a green piece of paper in my safe. That explains everything. I don't even know if she actually believed me because it sounds such a ridiculous thing to say. Did your mum know that you were associated with any criminal activity? Or- I suppose she knows I've done certain things, but yeah, she's got no idea 99% of things that I've got up to. And because most of my mates don't either, because like I say, everybody just tells one person. So I'm the world's greatest person at keeping secrets, apart from this bloody podcast. Fair. <laughs> As you would imagine, unlike a rogue criminal, my situation was a little different in the sense that I was on the side of the law and I had local police on my side. Despite all of that, it was one of the most difficult and terrifying times of my life. So in 2018, I was in Australia and I was contacted by a couple of clients who'd lost millions of dollars The two clients came separately, but then we realized very quickly it was the same targets. The investigation ran globally. We went to the Philippines to recover a laptop from a man who was recently deceased. Unbeknown to me, I wasn't the only one who wanted that computer, and they were not happy when I got it first. At this point, I was considered an enemy to a very dangerous criminal enterprise. They felt the only way to get that computer was to get rid of me. Not giving them too much credit, I was not going to keep a computer with evidence of this nature at my house. I did put an infiltrator into that particular group to find out what was going on. One day, the infiltrator rang me and he said, they've just taken a hit out on your life. Am I being double agent actually was my first concern. Is this guy trying to set me up? Is he trying to get me to leave the investigation because an infiltrator normally is somebody who has criminal background. That's why they're doing what they're doing for me. But they can also easily be bought. Who pays them the most money normally gets the information. Going back to this phone call, I decided I'd better take some serious steps. I had my son living at home with me. My daughter lived in America at the time. Rang the police They really weren't that interested initially. On the Monday morning, it was around 6.30 and there was a knock at my door. It was a whole heap of detectives. 
They came in my house and they said, we've had it confirmed. There has been a hit taken out on you. You need to go into witness protection. I have a firm to run and two children that would be affected by this. So there was no way I was going to go into hiding indefinitely. The detective said, okay, we will put cameras in your house, panic buttons in every room and on the phone of your family. So you have them all the time. And we will put police outside your door from six till six. No one's going to get in with those kind of measures. I tried to pretend I was super tough, but actually I was really bothered because I knew who the people were that I was dealing with. So inside I was actually crumbling. The first thing that I did was ship my son off to America to stay with his sister. And the next few months were very isolated. I didn't want to go anywhere because I had this massive fear of being in my car and being at traffic lights and that being the end. So life became really lonely. I continued with the investigation. Then the police's interest kind of dropped off a little bit. So the guys outside my front door were removed. They told me that my risk was decreasing. No one had come round to my house and no one had tried to kill me. So I understood that I wasn't a priority. And I still had the cameras at my house, so I still had safety. I still had the panic buttons on my phone. That was in the April when the hit was taken out. It's now October. So I'm kind of living this life, being very mindful wherever I go, doing counter-surveillance techniques, making sure no one's following me. It's really early in the morning. And in my house, the situation was that the police had all of these monitors in the living area. So I could see what was going on outside my house all the time. But upstairs, I had a personal camera next to my bed that went directly to the front door. And it was 5.45 in the morning and my doorbell went. I looked at my personal camera because the police cameras were on the next floor and there's no one there. I went downstairs and looked at all the monitors and all the monitors were black. There was nothing on there at all. So I pressed the panic button. All these uniformed cops arrived, looked around the house. Nobody's here. You're safe. No one asked why I had cameras in my house. It was another department, so they didn't really care. I rang the detective in charge and said, you know, this has happened. And he said, okay, well, we're going to look at the footage. The next day I heard from them and they said, we've looked at the footage. It's all fine. It's just a random person probably who has rung your doorbell by mistake. The following day, I got a phone call from the police to say, can you get back to your house now? The house is full of detectives. And they said, we saw the guy going to your door And he jammed all of the CCTV, but he didn't jam it quick enough. And we saw him with a weapon. I didn't initially tell anyone at all. And it was a very difficult thing to live with on your own. And I was scared sitting in my house at nighttime. I don't think I slept for months. And then I decided enough was enough. I had to deal with this. I never meant to even get involved with this group of people. It happened by accident. I was investigating somebody else. I didn't realize that they were affiliated. I had to do something proactive to get this removed. And the only way I was going to do that was to face the person behind the hit. Through my informant, I was able to get the contact for the head of the organization. And though I was terrified, I set up a meeting. I knew I had to either sit down and negotiate with this man, spend the rest of my life looking over my shoulder, or worse, 
I was told, don't bring the police, don't bring any of your surveillance team, you come on your own. And if you don't come on your own, I will kill you. I make the decision that the only way to protect myself and the kids is not to tell anyone and not to take anyone with me. I go to meet him and we have a cup of tea. It's in a public place. And behind him was a guy who was obviously like his protection and, and his bag man, as is officially known, the man who carries the firearm so that he doesn't ever get caught with a firearm. We're in Australia and it, it's very different to being here and people with guns because you don't have a gun unless you're a cop in Australia, the end. So I played on, I'm a mom, I'm a single mom, and I can't walk around looking over my shoulder. I just can't. I have to know that my kids are safe. I know that you have different codes in your world, and I never wanted to cross those codes. The meeting only lasted about half an hour, but it felt like a year. I made the case as if my life depended on it, because it did. I'd like to think that I appealed to his sense of humanity. The reality is probably that I made a convincing enough case that I was no longer a threat to his organization, and at this point, we could actually help each other out. After all, if I could make myself seem useful without causing any harm or breaking the law, he actually might want to keep me alive. He basically said, we're going to shake on it from this point onwards, and you will never fear from us again. I knew that it was over, and I knew that his shake of a hand was his word. I was trying not to cry because I was really emotional at that point, and I just remember just thoughts about my life being very differently evaluated. And then I went through this moment of, maybe I'm not going to do this anymore. Stop investigating. Now look after yourself and your family, because part of what I do is about helping others. And I do that at all costs. And for a moment, I decided that I wasn't going to do that anymore. The reality is that these organizations do exist. And most of the time, it's about money, whether it's arms trade, whether it's drugs trade, whether it's sex trafficking, it's all going back to the same thing. It's all about money. And somebody who gets in their way to stop the money tree is a threat. But should we stop doing what we do? and allow that to continue? Hell no. At the end of the day, people know what's right and wrong. And that's why we do what we do, because we want to bring justice. Join me next episode. We'll talk undercover operations with one of my favorite operatives, my daughter, Amy. We'll discuss what it's like having an investigator for a mother and her early memories of going undercover. Until next time, I'm Nina Hobson, and this has been Codename Sirens.